So I think there's going to be a net increase in carbon emissions across the region. The growth is slow. I think there's maybe even some way to plateau or even shrink carbon emissions. But for countries that are growing, I think their priority and even their popular vote, right, is for taking on more energy consumption, which leads to carbon emissions as a byproduct. So I think that's the awkward reality for Southeast Asia from my perspective is everybody wants to be more carbon efficient in their future energy growth expansion, but that still results in a slower rise in total emissions. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Nodeflare is a trusted recruiting partner for startups looking to scale their technology teams. They have a curated pipeline of talent from data scientists to full-stack engineers. Learn about the latest salary trends and benchmark compensation across the region. Nodeflare offers more than 10,000 verified salary data points completely free to employers. Check out www.nodeflare.com today. Morning, Shiyan. Good morning, Jeremy. We had a wonderful lunch recently about sustainability in ESG. And we figured we'll just take our conversation. Actually, it reminded me of that song I had as a kid. I don't remember the Captain Planet theme song. Like, oh my God. Captain Planet, he's a hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. This is a podcast. <laughs> It's hey, not a concert, you know. Captain Planet, like in a rerun in the morning. So I think there's a lot of people talking about sustainability, right? I think almost every other article actually is very much talking about the planet, the future. Is climate planet... change is real, dude. Well, climate change is real. Okay, so let's put it up front for everybody. So she and I are both officially agreed that climate change is real, right? Okay, so we got that out of the way. But I guess the question is, is the planet doomed? That's, I think, the other end of the scale, right? That I think people, there's a lot of um, fear, right? You know, the world is shrinking, population is dropping, pollution is going up. But like, what does that actually change in your life? Like, if you thought the world was doomed, like, how would you behave differently? <laughs> there's a fatalist nihilism competition, which is that it doesn't matter. Well, I, I was, I'm just going to go for optimism. I think the, I think the planet is going to get better. I think it's, it's a long arc. There's going to be ups and downs. But I'm an optimist. I do believe that society is building on each other and, you know, technology is stacking on each other. And somehow we figured out something very weird over the past 1,000 years, right? Which is this weird thing called technology improvement, right? So for before that, for 100,000 years, humans basically were like the same in terms of energy, aggregation, production, consumption. And then over the past 1,000 years, we have seen this amazing thing called technology, society, whatever it is, society is starting to really progress and make things better for every generation, right? So now we say things like, oh, there's a generational shift, right? In the past 5,000 years ago, every generation is exactly the same, right? Now we have, we mark time of generations, right? So 
I do believe that with each generation, I think things are getting better. I think we create new problems for ourselves, but I think things will get better. Anyway, that's my, I don't know, morning pep talk to myself. How are you feeling, Shien? I don't know if I'm as sanguine as you. I mean, I think, I think climate change is real and it, it requires concerted effort across multiple stakeholders, which is always difficult to do. And I think maybe like in our field of investing, I think the question is like, how do you align people's incentives to get them to do the thing you want them to do? Because people aren't just going to do things out of the goodness of their hearts. And, and does that really drive material behavior change? So, I mean, it's real in that Singapore, I think in the last budget, said they're spending $100 billion over the next 10 years to combat climate change and ensure that we can be, I mean, you're an island, right? Rising sea levels are not great for you. So I, I, I think that's, that's perhaps maybe the question, which is like, to what extent or, or how can investors help efforts is, and also ESG, we probably have to define that. Like, what does ESG mean? I think it means different things to different people. And what, what can the average person sort of do? Because I think that, that's another problem with climate change is most people are like, well, what should I do as a normal average person? I don't operate a yeah. factory or <laughs> have herds of cows. Like, what, what, what do I yeah. do, right, that yeah. can meaningfully impact something? And if you feel like you can't do anything, you kind of just throw up your hands and you're like, oh, it's, we're all doomed. Yeah. I, I think you're right to say let's think about it from a macro perspective, right? And I think you mentioned something, which is Singapore is making investments. And I think lots of countries in the region in Southeast Asia are investing somewhat. But the awkward reality is that carbon emissions are going to rise in most countries in Southeast Asia because carbon emissions, unfortunately, is a byproduct of energy consumption, right? And all the countries around the region, they are looking to use more energy, right? To manufacture, to power their homes, to power technology. So I think there's an interesting, going to be a net increase in carbon emissions across the region, right? Which is a function of economic growth, right? So I think... I think there's this tension between developed markets and developing markets, right? Which is about, do you, for developed markets, I think if are, the growth is slow, I think there's maybe even some way to plateau or even shrink carbon emissions. But for countries that are growing, I think their priority and even their popular vote, right, is for taking on more energy consumption, which leads to carbon emissions as a byproduct. So I think that's the awkward reality for Southeast Asia from my perspective is, Everybody wants to be more carbon efficient in their future energy growth expansion, but that still results in a slower rise in total emissions, right? So I think that's the yeah, nuance I mean, there. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean like if you look at the per capita carbon emission, right? I'm sure like the average no, let me I can look it up. Yeah, the average American per capita emits 13x what an Indian does. So unfair. Why do they get a, Why don't they shrink it down by 12x and then we keep things the same, right? I th- no, no, that no, this but, feels like the feeling, right? That yeah, a lot yeah. Yeah, it, at it, the yeah. international carbon debate, right? It's like, why are we penalizing, I think, emerging economies that have never had an opportunity of a thousand years of energy consumption and carbon emissions? Um, and capital formation, right? And it's capital like formation. Kind of, it's essential for capital formation, yeah. Yeah. Well, my one simple proposal for Singapore is we should just make all office buildings warmer by two degrees. 
Lee Kuan Yew said that the world's greatest modern invention was the air conditioning because yes, they allowed people yes, in tropical it environments to work. But it doesn't have to be freezing. Like that's <laughs> actually like like it doesn't have like I think if we could just you put a a limiter a rate limiter on the yeah. building aircon yeah and just make it two degrees warmer. It's a mark of luxury that you can have cold aircon in your West Western office, right? That's how a lot of like shopping malls and airports. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I agree. So I think what we're kind of talking a little bit is okay. Here's this landscape, right, of the macro, right? Emissions, carbon. So how should investors be thinking about it? I feel like there are two schools of thought, right? One is obviously we need to support government and in terms of coordinating action, etc. But I think what's been interesting is that here actually. quite a big debate about what the slope of carbon emission reduction should be, right? So should we invest now or should we wait for more technology to emerge in the next 10 or 20 years and then go try to fix it in 10 or 20 years, right? That seems to be actually a very common topic of debate, actually, because it's kind of nuanced, right? It's kind of saying like, let's not do anything for the next 10 to 20 years so much. Let's focus on R&D and then let's really focus on commercialization of that technology down the road, right? I don't know. That Any feels like that? just kicking the can down the road. <laughs> that that feels like saying, well, there's nothing we can do now, which I think is untrue. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I, I like buy that. Well, the good news about that argument is that people who don't want to do anything about it can definitely agree with that argument, right? So there's like the people who are good in good faith advocating for that, which I agree with personally. And I think there's people who are in bad faith agreeing with the argument, which kind of like muddies the water very I mean, I think, look at solar cells, right? I mean, if we had tried to do solar cell investments like 20 years ago, it would have been a nightmare, right? Because solar cells was just so expensive to roll out and commercialize. But now I think solar cells in like many parts of the world are just cheaper than, than oil and gas, right? No, uh, but, but like, are yeah. you saying from the perspective as an investor or like humanity, right? The only reason it's cheaper is because people did invest. Yeah. Like uh, if those people hadn't invested, it wouldn't be cheaper today. They invested R&D, CapEx, and China cloned Germany's solar cell industry and uh, the world has generally agreed not to put too much tariffs on Chinese solar cells. So that's the only reason why we're doing it. But yeah, it took a 20-year capital investment cycle, right? So right. I know I, I, yeah. But like, you're saying like, you're saying, who are you saying should not, in, like, who Ooh. should fund the R&D? You're making me think real hard, Shayan. I, I think, I think, when people use that analogy, I think that the people thinking about like, okay, government has, has to act now R&D and incentives, right? And CapEx formation. So for example, on like hydro, et cetera. But I think there's a view, which is that some of the more technologies that are not ready for commercialization, it's hard for the private sector to do, right? So should we do more nuclear power? Should we do more nuclear fusion? I think these are the... This is actually a very fuzzy topic to debate, actually. And I, I, I want to kind of acknowledge that, but I think that's the one big sentiment that I feel happens in the tech circles from my perspective i mean it's probably largely a function of who your lps are and what they expect i mean yeah if your lps like thought they were investing in a software fund they would not be super happy to like hear you're investing in fundamental research on nuclear fusion but i think if your lps are interested in that type of investment and that is kind of like explicitly what you're set up to do, then it, there's no point having yet another software investor, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think 
we only make progress when we actually invest and do the work and it's it's not free and so like should governments bear that r d cost should the private sector or whatever like should billionaires instead of trying to get us to move to to mark spend their money instead on on energy research maybe i don't think you make progress unless we we like try <laughs> like no one's magically going to do it for us i suppose yeah i think what's fair by the way and interesting is that there's a lot of r d is happening and I think obviously when we had zero interest rates and lots of free money coming around, we had all these terrible fraud, right? Like Terranos and all these other things. But we also had a lot of moonshot technology get invested in, right? So we had nuclear fusion, obviously we had chatbots, but we had a whole bunch of stuff that got a bunch of R&D because you could really push out that sustainability angle in the short term, but not worry too much about payments across the 10-year time frame. So I thought it was a really interesting dynamic where the zero interest rates policy has actually allowed for R&D. I don't know. It was just a, I think a lot of people are like, boo, zero interest rates and talk about all the fraud and the bad times. But I just think a lot of capital investment happened because of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a friend who's working on like new battery chemistry. Like that's the kind of thing that takes a lot of money. Like it's fundamental research, but... If he succeeds, he can improve battery efficiency, like order of magnitude. And that's really important, I think, for all the renewables and stuff. You need to have better batteries. And battery technology has not really advanced significantly kind of in the last 20, 30 years. And if you look at, I think, the types of investors who are doing that, there are some academics, R&D types of things. But then there's also people who would really have a vested interest in improved batteries. And they don't necessarily have that capability in their own commercial labs because they need things that are much closer to market in their own commercial operations. But to fund a startup that has brought together all of these PhDs to work on chemistry together, I think that's a worthwhile bet for them. Yeah. And I think that's true, right? Which is that we're talking about a subset for deep tech and hardware. They've always historically needed more capital, right? And I think with the rise of interest rates, I think they've definitely come under more pressure so obviously, VCs are focusing on more due diligence and right-sizing the investments they're having. But I think I do notice that it's harder for a lot of these folks to raise the capital out there. But this right? goes back to the origins of venture capital, right? Which is like yeah. it was in semiconductors. Right. It's incredibly capital intensive. I mean, even like pre-Amazon, right? Even like a simple software business, you had to like spend on servers, right? Yeah. Let alone doing semiconductor stuff, which is obviously much more research intensive and more capital intensive. And I mean, that's the promise, right? Which is like, hey, you nail this new geometry or you nail this new design and, you know, every marginal chip that comes off is, is pure margin and profit. But mm. yeah, I do think it kind of goes back to yeah. the origins of venture capital and like really investing in things kind of on the frontiers of like what is technologically possible. It's kind of cool. It's kind of exciting, actually. Yeah. No, I think it's fair. And I think the, the awkward reality is that the origins of venture capital, by doing so, we're also going back to the time of like the partnership with government, right? Because all of that Silicon Valley you just mentioned was highly subsidized by the defense and military industry, right? For basic R&D, for subsidies on you know, land and production. Um, and I think maybe for the past 10 years, because of zero interest rates, I think government has really seemed to take a backseat to VCs who are like cowboying <laughs> the future and frontier. But I think, like you said, I think the return of it is like that. You know, well, I think partnership. it's more that the governments tended to be early customers. Right. 
So like it was sort of like Department of Defense would be the people who were buying these chips, right? Like because right. they weren't necessarily, but but the money, I mean, I think government money is sort of in different buckets, right? I think there's the really early basic research type of money. And then there's like the Department mm -hmm. of Defense yeah. wants the best missile guiding technology or whatever, and they want to be a customer. But in between, I think it's still private capital. It's still people who think they're going to make a ton of money by selling these things. And then once you get the Department of Defense as your customer, that kind of gives you a foothold to then go think of like other other broader, more commercial applications. So and I, I think it's one thing the government is not good at is commercial applications, right? Mm. It's kind of like not where their their specialty is. And what you say is true, right? Which is that I think the government has a very important role of being the first customer, but also making sure there's adoption, right? So you talk about microchips. But I think that's also very true for almost all of the climate tech that's out there for two levels, right? Obviously, in the short term, we've seen EVs, right? So the Biden administration has really accelerated. I mean, first of all, the state of California has mandated the requirement for all vehicles to be EV. And now effectively, Biden has effectively done a soft version of that with their hidden industrial policy to make it basically make America be 100% EV in 100 years. So that's a huge change, obviously pissing off Saudi Arabia and OPEC and so, so forth. There's another conversation of another day. But I think there's so much climate tech that's just dependent on the concept of carbon credits, right? I mean, I think, I think that's where some of my, I would say, bearishness perhaps is coming in. Because I think I remember like almost 20 years ago, we we're talking about carbon credits and the, the price of carbon credits in order to price carbon in order to create a commercial incentive. And I, I just think that it's been tough for a lot of startups that have been dependent on the concept of a price carbon credit. It's hard for them to monetize. It's hard for them to sell. And there's not much conviction. I think that this is going to take up a lot, much larger uptake down the future, right? So I think for EVs, it's a little bit more straightforward. But I well, think I mean, credits, I think yeah. they're both the same in that you do need a little bit of regulatory pressure to work, right? Right. So, like, I mean, I think the economics of carbon credits is is relatively straightforward. But if there's no one to compel you to pay right. for your emissions, then, like, why would you? Right. Right. So I think that's where the government comes in, right? And so I think maybe some of these startups, it's like you're assuming people will do these things, but you don't have enough regulatory support to get it done. Right. And so, and, and you as a startup, it's like hard for you to make that happen, right? It's like out of your control. And so what are the things that are kind of like within your control that can startups can still have an impact on? Yeah. But there's a lot of these are like, oh, like consumers going to buy carbon credits out of the goodness of their heart. Right? Like, it, like it's very hard to change behavior unless there is a yeah. law that's like, hey, guys, you have to. But I mean, it's like littering. If there wasn't a fine for littering. <laughs> You know, I think Singapore would be much dirtier. People would just do random stuff, right? Like you can compel behavior through through law or through incentives and, and preferably both. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right? Which is that carbon credits, they also have the free rider problem, like you said, right? Which is like if if you're shrinking your carbon emissions, but someone else is increasing their carbon emissions, guess what? The carbon gets mixed up in the air anyway, right? So people cheat all the time on carbon credits. But I think for manufacturing, right, then it becomes much more muscular industrial policy, right? Because America is like, okay, this is a great way for me to subsidize my man automobile manufacturing industry. It's the future. It reduces our dependence on OPEC and so, so forth. I thought it's just kind of interesting to see that happening, right? And you see China also doing a massive amount of push towards EV as well. And I think Indonesia actually has come up as surprisingly 
I was actually very pleasantly surprised, actually, and definitely surprised, I think, by Indonesia's like big push, right? I, I think in retrospect, it's a little bit more obvious since they have so much of the raw material needed to make batteries, right? With nickel mines and so, so forth. So it's a bit more obvious in retrospect. But if you ask me, say, three years ago, that the government would make such a clear pledge and target to transition towards EVs, I would... Well, they, would, also, yeah. they also have a lot of islands. Yeah. <laughs> they are also impacted by climate change. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think oil and gas also has been a source of actually geopolitical insecurity, right? For a lot of folks in Southeast Asia as well. So the risk of energy supplies and so forth has always been there. So it's a bit of a national security concern. So I think good things happen when, you know, you have the people who want to save the world and then you combine them with the people who want to bring back manufacturing and people who want to maintain national security. That tends to be a, I don't know, hidden coalition that seems to be emerging, right, for a lot of this energy tech coming out. I mean, it all boils down to money, right? <laughs> and I think the time horizon, right? Because like you're basically saying, like, I care about this happening 50 years, 100 years. And yeah, you need people who care about that. I don't know, national well, security. Concern, national right? security, you can always wave the specter of someone like cutting you off or invading you or something. And it feels much more like close than yeah. this sort of amorphous idea of like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah. Right. And and even manufacturing, like jobs, jobs are a much more tangible thing to say, like, hey, this is what you're gonna get if you do this thing. Like you don't even have to believe in electric vehicles, but you can believe that like plants in your town are gonna create more employment. That's like on net good for your town. Yeah, I agree actually. And I think that's something that a lot of the ESG folks actually I think I've noticed have become much better at. I think coalition building, messaging, right? We're just saying like, okay, these are the five ways it impacts your day-to-day life, right? In fact, I think one of the most interesting like ESG companies, obviously, they just skip the whole carbon credits. They were just like, hey, save money, electricity bill at the kind of like office building level, right? We're just basically saying like, look, times are good. You want to save money. Times are bad. You still want to save money, right? And if you use our service, we can lower your electricity bill by 20%, which comes up to millions of dollars across a 10-year time just frame, Just two right? degrees warmer, man. Yeah, I have exactly. a simple fix for you. You don't need IoT for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't, they don't tell you it's two degrees Celsius. They, they smuggle it in. They'll be like, <laughs> they switch it off at night. They keep it on and during the day. They, they make it seem automatic. And I think they do a good job, right? You know, I, I mean, I thought it was an excellent way to sell it. So there's like, they don't say ESG. They say like, the problem is this. This is the problem that you face today. And then one of the benefits they talk about later is that the ESG is one of the tailwinds that can help them in terms of getting mm-hmm. support, stakeholders, talent, yeah. press. But I think yeah. that the... the the capital thing is kind of, kind of interesting, right? So there's all these sort of mandates in the EU around climate and measurement and traceability. And there are pools of capital that are allocated against that. And so there, people are looking for assets that fit this. And these are interesting sort of sources of capital, I think, for people who are working in climate or climate adjacent things to be able to say like, hey, because we're doing this, 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 it has an impact on these climate goals and therefore we are eligible for these pools of capital so it does open up i think sources of funding that might not have previously been available and kind of in kind of unlikely ways or like i wouldn't expect some climate business in malaysia and indonesia to be like raising from the europeans but they're sort of seeing options there and a lot of it is also about measurement right like Mm. you can't manage it if you're not measuring it and measurement sort of goes hand in hand with digitization, 
right. which is what a lot of startups in the region are trying to do, right, is to digitize this supply chain or that supply chain. And once you digitize them, you can actually track like, hey, okay, how many goods are moving through this supply chain at any one point in time? Right. And you can assign sort of values to those things. And then you can actually say whether or not, you know, something is more or less beneficial for the environment. You can actually, you have a baseline and then you can measure things off of that, right? Which is not previously possible because that has to go with all this sort of like shady carbon credit stuff. Like, is this really a carbon credit? Like, did you just make this up? Versus like, hey, we actually have real time tracking on it because we are tracking it for a business purpose, not just for climate. Right. Yeah, I think it lowers the cost of capital, right? And I think previously we talked about zero interest rates being lowering the cost of capital for everybody in every vertical. And this case, we're talking about this mandate is actually helping lower the cost of capital for societally important goals, right? And I totally agree. I think it's tremendous, really helpful. It does remind me about the fact that there are other funds that are going the other direction because when too much capital is invested in ESG, then the non-ESG stuff like oil and gas and vice industries, I'm putting air quotes on that. Are you starting like a new tobacco. fund, Jeremy? All, well, all the, uh, the vice industries, well, they perform really well in during this economic climate because of, like you said, the de-investment in them has opened up the opportunity, right? For, I mean, even Warren Buffett kind of like saw the opportunity here where he started investing a lot in oil and gas because he saw everybody pull out of oil and gas. So he pulled in and he got larger returns, right? Because those industries have a higher cost of capital now. And as a result, he gets to earn a higher rate of return, right? So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that I want to set it up, but I'm just saying I'm acknowledging that there is an interesting... Do you guys have there. a vice clause? Like, are you allowed to invest in gambling or... That is a great question. I think for us, we've obviously worked with more and more LPs, right? Institutions. And these institutions actually are starting to do ESG reporting and monitoring. So there's actually implicit and explicit provisions, basically, right? Around not disclosing any harm that's material, obviously, to society or environment. But also, I think we are expected to report our ESG metrics, actually, right? Against UN Sustainable Development Goals, right? You know, oh, interesting. Like, what do they ask you to report? Well, I mean, it's a soft reporting, right? So even now when we look at companies, we are, we are aware, we actually put in a section that says, we know that these are the benefits on versus, versus SDG goals. And are we aware of any SDG goals that may be materially adverse, right? That being said, I think like you said, right? Startups are really about digitizing the future, right? And so in general, I think it's pretty hard, but it does serve as an implicit form of shaping investment policy, right? Now that we're working with US institutions. So I think it's actually a huge hidden invisible hand, not the economics invisible hand, invisible, two invisible policy heads <laughs> that LP stakeholders have actually kind of like exercised through the economy is actually kind of interesting, actually. I mean, 10 years ago, I mean, people were really trying to do impact investing and social impact bonds. And I remember talking to them. So they were trying to create very strict forms of capital pools. And the other competitor camp was, let's make all investing have mandatory reporting on ESG, right? And I feel like that camp actually has ended up being more impactful, I think, over the long term, from my perspective. Yeah. I, I heard about an initiative to create green mortgage bonds. Ooh, to explain what green mortgage bonds are. Yeah. It's basically the idea, like, if you think about what are the biggest culprits in carbon emissions, construction is a big one of the, part mm. of them. And so it's creating like basically capital for green buildings right? that you can kind of borrow at a lower rate 
if you meet the right the green construction so you'll basically like you can impact sort of like a whole industry because they all I mean they need to borrow money to build right right and then that translates through to the homeowner that they would have access to lower mortgages lower priced mortgages if they bought something that was green right and so basically you're like aligning the incentives all the way through which i thought was pretty interesting actually yeah i think it's interesting and I think it reminds me of this conglomerate I met and they have this huge problem where their most profitable assets are the ones that are the most energy inefficient on a day-to-day basis because nobody wants to buy them because of this future mandate. But in a short term, it's a cash cow that keeps creating an asset, right? And so they're kind of stuck, right? Which is like, it's too expensive to refurbish or retrofit, but it's doing great for returns for the next 10 to 20 years, 30 years. And so from their perspective is they want to use those returns and use it to invest in, in green returns, right? And I think, actually, if you think about it from a business perspective, it's actually quite rational and quite logical from a business perspective, but it just does not write well in a stakeholder or shareholder report, right? At all, right? So it's kind of like a sweep it under the rug kind of dynamic. Yeah. They report everything on a blended basis, right? From their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think what's interesting is that that's the we're kind of talking about the future, right? It's like, I think future energy, future sources of housing is becoming more efficient and the old stock, right? The people in the present and the past are the folks that are going to drive a lot of this energy inefficiency. So I don't know. We talked about kids last time, right? But you know, our kids, our grandkids, you think they're going to be like, thumbs up, this generation really did did a job? Or what do you think? They already have, right? I mean, like, how old is Greta... Thunberg she's like what 12 I don't know how old she is but I mean I think they're already aware like I don't know my kids like they talk about this at school they talk about how the earth is sick and how they need to like not waste things and recycle and all this stuff so I think kids are pretty aware and kids a lot of it is habit right what are the habits that you get them into to I don't know are you a big steak eater, Jeremy? Cows are a big source of emissions. <laughs> like, like one of the things you can yeah, do right. as an individual is to like be vegetarian. Yes. Yeah. That's... So it is very funny. I met an oil and gas trader over the weekend who is vegan. Really? And, and I yeah. was like, that's interesting. Like what, what precipitated that, right? And he was like, well, like, He's like, I do realize the irony of an oil and gas trader being vegan for climate reasons. He like was really upset about deforestation and climate impacts. And he's like, well, what can I do? And he became, he became vegan. Well, it reminds me of, I was reading this book about how Coca-Cola executives don't really drink a lot of Coke. So it was interesting. Like I was reading this like expose and I was just like, what? They only drink Coke like once a month. And they're like, this is a sometimes drink. Just I don't drink soda at all. Yeah. Well, I gave up soda after investment banking okay. because I had drank yeah. so much soda in a two-year period and I was like, I feel very unhealthy. Yeah. I, I, but I think that's the thing about ESG and carbon. I think there's a lot of like explicit governmental norms, obviously, in policy that I think is really, really important because dollars and cents is really key to that. And then you have this coalition side, but there's also all these implicit social norms, right? That's just shaping people. Like one thing I actually do notice, for example, based on what you just said is a lot of ESG startups actually get a ton of talent. They have a talent subsidy, right? Because people want to work for that company. They want to work. People want to work on things that are meaningful, right? You yeah. You want to feel like you're not just shilling 
another thing yeah to people but i mean yeah. i think there's a lot of things you can do right which is like hey like can we walk or bike more do we always have to get in the car right. can we use public transit i think the government's trying to do some of that right they're trying to build more bike paths they're trying to create transit has always been a big part of policy but there's all these sort of like structural things that you can do to try to like lower people's carbon footprint and that are actually good for society right like People who walk and bike more will be less costly to the public health care system later. Yeah. So it isn't just all like touchy-feely, feel-good type of stuff. There are, I think, dollars and cents associated with that. And I think that's the crux of it, right? It's like you can care about climate tech and ESG from a moral perspective, but being able to coalition build, for example, in your scenario with urban planners and public health folks, like all that stuff really has to happen otherwise. I mean, yeah. I'm a huge fan of covered walkways. So when I first moved back to Singapore, I kept seeing these signs that were like 43 kilometers of covered walkways built. And I was like, haha, what a funny thing to like be excited about. Yeah. But then I was like, you know what? It's awesome, right? Like yeah. it rains a lot here. It's really hot here. And it helps people like use public transit more effectively and walk more. And it keeps sort of like the urban core cooler you know, alongside all of our green planting and everything. And I'm like, these things can sometimes feel like very, I don't know, quotidian, prosaic. Well, I don't know what the right word is, yeah. but they actually matter to people's quality of life. And it's, I think it's, I think it's great. So. Yeah. And on that note, yeah, I think there are a lot of folks who are building in Indonesia, Thailand, right? So there's like James Chan at IU Mobility building in Indonesia for electric motorbikes, sleek EV in Thailand is building there as well. I'm going to so, put in a plug for my portfolio company, Dat Bike in Vietnam, building very sexy electric bikes. Yeah, exactly. There we go. So I think it's I think it's an interesting piece, right? It's like they're selling electric bikes. It's got the great acceleration. People like the consumer brand, domestic manufacturing. And I think that's a sweet spot that I think is happening. So I suspect actually electric bikes is really going to become surprisingly... Again, I was surprised by this if you asked me five years ago, but... I think the uptake I think they're, fast. they're awesome. I'm not even a big motorcyclist, but I've ridden those bikes in Ho Chi Minh, yeah. which is yeah. terrifying, by the way. And they're, <laughs> sweet, health, yeah. they're sweet bikes. Like it's so very sweet. smooth and the acceleration's awesome. And they look um, good. Yeah, they're a bit retro. I mean, they're going to release a scooter, yeah. which is like more conventional looking, yeah, but yeah. with like that same kind of like yeah. 200 plus kilometer range, which right. is like more than enough for a day. Yeah, in an urban setting. You're not going 200k unless you're like a grab driver or something. Um, but one more, I think, is like we have a we have a carbon accounting portfolio company in Malaysia oh, called Pantas, oh. and they recently launched a partnership with Bank Negara and Kosan. Right. Interesting. So Kosan is the second largest glove manufacturer in Malaysia. Right. Bank Negara is the central bank, and basically, it's a coalition to help implement carbon accounting for Kosan supply chain. So all the sort of contractors, subcontractors who are all the way in that rubber latex glove manufacturing process. And there's a ton of support for it. I mean, obviously the Kosan founder and CEO cares a lot about climate. So he's kind of like an early adopter. They understand they have European and American clients and there will be pressure kind of coming on the customer side to implement some of these things. And so you, know, you are seeing these roll out and yeah, it is, it is a dollars and cents thing. It, people yeah. aren't only doing it because they want to feel good about it. Oh, it is a good point. We should list out who are the cool ESG sustainability startups out there. I, I think this is interesting, right? I thought one interesting company is 
Tiger Energy. So they're doing battery tech. They're also building a battery swapping network in Indonesia. So obviously, they feel like a big reason why there's a handicap of the adoption curve is the fact that people pay for the battery and the bike when in China, people just pay for the incremental charge within the battery, right? So it's a two orders of magnitude in terms of cost. Is a big bet actually around standards and operations. Yeah. I mean, um, Gogoro has been doing this for quite some yeah. time in Taiwan. Yeah. And um, they've worked, but they haven't been able to replicate that outside yes, Taiwan. Yes, it's right? true. So that's they the tried part. to enter Vietnam and they couldn't. So it's just really, really interesting. So that's a big part. I think Poland is pretty interesting. Uh, also, as another company. I guess both Poland and Tag Energy have come on the podcast before. But Poland, for them, they're doing every FMCG principle is always going to overproduce. <laughs> they're never ever going to be a scenario where they underproduce. And so they have a bunch of stuff that's all you know, stuck in a warehouse. They're going to liquidate it. They're going to landfill it. And so now they're taking, taking this inventory and they're going to resell it, right? At, at a lower cost, right? So it's an efficiency play to generate. But it's a nice coalition where they remove, reduce landfill, reduce pollution, increase manufacturing efficiency, reduce storage space, and increase profits, right? For the principal. So it's an interesting combo. Also that, a portfolio company. Oh, Yeah. Wow. And one more, uh, return key in Indonesia. Yeah. Also a circular economy business where they're taking, so not just FMCG, but, you know, excess inventory from like Lazada's of the world. Yeah. So that's like electronics, shirts, shoes, whatever it is, and selling it on. And they actually have an interesting idea, which is they have these bin stores where inventory comes in on day one. Everything in the store is like, $10. The next day, everything is $9. The next day, everything is $8. Now I want to buy something. I mean, yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) And then so like kind of like replicating that model, bringing it out to tier two, tier three cities, but really basically eliminating landfill or even worse, burning things and getting use out of it. And I think going back to carbon accounting is a big spread. I think there's a Graysai at Unravel Carbon, right? She was on the previous Brave podcast as well. But she also raised a very large seed round to do carbon accounting. I think it's a very tricky space. I actually haven't... I think there's a lot you have to kind of stack on to get there. But I think the world will eventually do carbon accounting. But the question is, is it within 10 years or within 30 years, right? That's I hope so. My fun life was 10 years. So I told the podcast guys, I need you to... Max, just convince just every take... CFO as a shake them and say, be no, no, vegan no. and do carbon accounting. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, they, they yeah. have, there's commercial motivations for people to implement, right? And right. so it's kind of getting in front of those people and, and, and getting it into their supply chains. Yeah. On that note, what's the one key thing that you hope happens in 10 years? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's your answer is, oh, my God. <laughs> that would be a bad thing to hear in 10 years. I think I would hope that for trips of a kilometer or less, people think about walking or using a bike. Oh. Like that's something that it's good for you and it's good for the planet. Yeah. In 10 years, I hope for very awesome bikes of e-bikes, scooters, et cetera. They already exist, man. I know they exist, but I'm not there yet. But they're cool, they're hip. My wife agrees to get one with me. Otherwise, she's, she's, she's definitely vetoing in favor of gas for now. Because she's in the reliability. The bike or a car? Which which one? I think car. Car, they have them. Polestars, Teslas. They're not there yet. There's a lot of people vetoing it. So so we're not there yet. But I think in 10 years, hopefully it's easy for both. Uh, I think my next car. Car. My next car will be a, an EV. Yeah. Awesome. See you around. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.